0: Open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6. I would like to read the first eight verses which will give us our material for this morning. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Let me read them to you. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works, and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, and of laying on of hands, and of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this will we do, if God permit. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away, to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. For the earth which drinketh in the rain that cometh oft upon it and bringeth forth herbs meet for them by whom it is dressed receiveth blessing from God. But that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected and is nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be burned. May God bless us this morning to understand these eight verses. I wish all of you knew the extent of the theological battles that have been fought over verses 4 through 6. If you could imagine a great battlefield with the smoke of battle rising off that battlefield, littered with the weapons of warfare. And on one side we see the tattered and destroyed remnants of the Calvinists who enter this passage desperate to maintain their heresy of the perseverance of the saints. And so they corrupt it. And on the other hand, we see all the free willers, all the Campbellites, and all the Arminians on the other side, tattered and torn and destroyed as they entered this passage with a desire to defend against easy believism and to defend the fact that God's saints must bring forth good works. And I commend them for that. But what has happened is that both of them have erred greatly in Hebrews chapter 6 and have missed the most simplistic easy understanding of this passage that I hope this morning I can communicate to you. This is one of the Gordian knots of the New Testament, Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. Because in it, we have those who participate in gospel blessings who fall away, who are then irremediably kept from any recovery. And we need to deal with that. First of all, let's take a look at this sixth chapter. Chapter 6 continues the interruption that Paul made in his discussion of Christ that ended at verse 10 of chapter 5. If you look at Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 10, we have the words, "called of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Because Paul's been dealing with the high priesthood of Christ all the way from chapter 4 and verse 12 through chapter 5 and verse 10. And then we have period. And then we have an interruption. And he does not get over his interruption until chapter 7. Notice what I, I said this last Sunday evening, but look again. In the 20th verse of chapter 6, he just ties into his interruption this statement in verse 20. Whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus, made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Those are the same words from chapter 5 and verse 10. So he's getting you back to where he was at chapter 5 and verse 10 as we go into chapter 7. But chapter 6 is like a parenthesis. It's an interruption. And brethren, chapter 6 is crucial. Chapter 6 is the turning point In the book of Hebrews, if you can't pass the test of chapter 6, certain destruction awaits you. That's the message of what we're going to cover this morning. Chapter 6 is the turning point. If the first five chapters of this book have not convinced you that you ought to follow Christ and hold fast your profession in the gospel, then nothing will convince you. And so you're under destruction. If, however, you have found the first five chapters sweet and you want to hold truer to Christ than you have in the past and you're convinced to full persuasion that Jesus is Savior and Lord and King, then Paul is going to dive into deeper depths of understanding in chapters 7 through 13. But 6 is the crucial point. That's why the interruption. Because he is going to lay a heavy burden and either turn off or turn on his hearers. Either condemn them to an irrecoverable situation, or exhort them that we're going to get into some interesting things in chapter 7, brethren. And this will we do if God permit. And God permitted, because when he got to chapter 7, the ink was still in his pen, and his mind was still fresh, and whoever was writing it for him was still writing. And he finished out the book of Hebrews. But remember, this is an interruption in the discussion of Jesus Christ. The first three verses comprise a section by themselves. They continue his rebuke from the last part of chapter 5. If you'll remember, the interruption begins with verse 11 in chapter 5. Speaking of Jesus Christ, Paul said, Of whom we have many things to say. And hard to be uttered, seeing ye are dull of hearing. Paul is saying, I've got so much I want to teach you about Jesus Christ. I mean, I want to lay on you people more fulfillment of the Old Testament in Christ than you've ever imagined. But you're too dumb. That's what he's saying. You're dull of hearing. You're, you're too immature. You're too ignorant. It's hard to say. How in the world do I communicate these glorious things to you when you're all babes? You're still wondering if you ought to follow Christ at all when I want to dive into the depths and show His the fulfillment of all the Old Testament types in Christ. Now, brethren, that's deep. That's a whole lot deeper than saying Jesus is God and that Jesus was made a little lower than the angels. But he couldn't do it because these Hebrews had not applied themselves. And what a warning that ought to give to all of us. Paul said in verse 12, they ought to be teachers But instead, they need a teacher. And instead of a teacher teaching them deep things, they need a teacher that will give them formula in a bottle. Milk instead of meat. And like I said, that's comparing baby formula to hard Italian sausage. And if John Frisella is hearing this message, he'll understand what I mean. Hard Italian sausage is hard to cut, it's hard to chew, and it's hard for those who aren't used to spicy meat. But that is a true picture of strong meat. As the Bible here describes it in verse 14, strong meat belongeth to them that are full. I, I like that strong meat, by the way, John Frisella. I just mean it's strong meat. You would not give a piece of hard Italian sausage to your young children because it would be there the next day in their mouths if they hadn't choked on it in the meantime. Paul wants to give these people strong meat. He wants to really open up the mystery of Christ, the mystery of the Old Testament that the Old Testament prophets never really saw, and show them how Christ is the great fulfillment of it all. That's what he wants to do, but he can't. He hasn't been able to. He's worried about it. He's wondering, how do I express it to people who are actually thinking about going back to Judaism? How can I go into the depths? And he tells them why they were in such a situation. And this is what we finished with last Sunday evening. It's because they did not use and exercise their senses to discern good and evil. Every one of you need to be exercising. Bodily exercise has little profit. Spiritual exercise has tremendous profit. 1 Timothy chapter 4. It not only has profit, it has promise. It has promise of the life that now is. If you exercise yourself spiritually, it will prove that you have life now, and it will give you hope of life to come. We'll see that before this chapter ends. That spiritual exercise is what we all need to be doing. We need to saturate ourselves with the Word of God. We need to fill our minds with it, fill our hearts with it, fill our homes with it, and apply it. Over and over until we think the way God wants us to think so that we have our senses exercised. Remember, I gave you the example of a coin grader, and I warned all of you people don't ever let me hear about you buying numismatic coins because I will sit back and grin big because you've been a sucker. I will grin sarcastically if you think you've made a wise investment because I've warned you. Numismatic coin investments are very dangerous because it is so subjective and dependent upon the man who pulls out his little magnifying glass and looks at that coin and tells you it is an MS, that's mint state, that's the state of the coin, MS-65. An MS-65 dollar, as I told you, could be worth 1200 An MS-64 could be worth 55 And an MS-63, 20 and you people wouldn't know the difference between an MS-65 and an MS-60. They're both considered uncirculated. What makes a man able to look at a coin and quickly make a judgment as to its mint state? Use. Use. Do you know how many coins he's looked at? 20 years worth of coins every day. Becomes a man's trade. You know, you can't beat a man at his trade. Why? By reason of use. How do we get proficient in applying the Word of God to marital problems, child problems, social problems, mental problems? How do we get to do that? But by use. And brethren, if this is all the use you get on Sunday morning and Sunday evening, you are going to be grading 60s as 65s and 65s as 60s. And you're going to be making some terrible investments in life. And that is the warning of the Apostle Paul. We need to use what we've got. This Bible needs to be read to our children, applied with our children, applied in our own marriages, followed. We need to read it, fill ourselves with it, memorize it, understand it, review it. Or it will be lost. And it's of no profit to us. That was a strong rebuke by the Apostle right here in the midst of his persuasion. And remember, if you wonder to yourself, well, if if Paul's trying to persuade them to hold fast, is that a good approach to take, a negative approach like that? Oh, yes. If it's short, if it's sweet, and if he moves on, which he's going to do in chapter 6. But if you tell somebody the reason they don't understand something and that you've got a whole lot more that's even better you can lay out if they were just a little more with it, that lays a tremendous burden of guilt on their consciences. It's very effective persuasion. None of that was lost to a sincere hearer. Therefore, we come to chapter 6, and therefore refers us back to that rebuke because we're still in the midst of that rebuke. We are still in the middle of Paul's interruption. Therefore it does not take us back to Jesus, the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. It takes us back to those that are of full age are ready for strong meat. And that we need strong meat and we need use of strong meat in order to be able to discern between good and evil. Therefore, since this is necessary for all of you, since I have already given you five chapters of principles, let us leave the principles of the doctrine of Christ. Where was he in the the principles of the doctrine of Christ? First five chapters. I mean... Did we run into anything deep? We ran into things glorious. We ran into things beautiful. But we did not run into things deep. The Jewish mind could easily understand the first five chapters. They were very powerful, very direct to their way of thinking. But Paul now says, Therefore, being that you need strong meat, let us leave the principles of the doctrine of Christ. Let us go on Unto perfection. And that perfection there isn't to be taken absolutely, it's to be taken relatively. The, the sense of the word perfection here is the same as full age in chapter 5 and verse 14. He's basically saying, Let's grow up. Now leaving the baby food, let's go on to some strong meat so you people can grow up. Let us go on unto perfection. First principles are necessary. There are some first principles that hardly need to be taught more than once, and that's before baptism. You know, Jesus Christ said in Matthew chapter 28, Go ye and teach all nations. That's order number one for his apostles. Number two, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. That's number two. And then number three, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. There's elementary teaching before baptism, then there's baptism, and then you teach them to observe all things whatsoever God has commanded, and if they don't measure up to all those things, then that's how you weed them out. We need to guard against trying to make sure we teach people everything there is to know and make sure they're repentant in every area of their lives before baptism. The Bible does not teach that. The Bible says take them in and weed them out later. The only thing necessary to be baptized, and become a member of this congregation, is to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Period. Now, if you've been known for some great public sin, and everyone is aware of it, there will be a degree of repentance required of you publicly. That's why John said that they ought to bring forth meat, fruits, meat for repentance, when they came to be baptized of Him in Matthew chapter 3. But that's all that's required. Then after baptism, you teach all things. First principles are necessary. Otherwise, you can't build. Because Paul says, not laying again the foundation. I believe it was Brother Jonathan that, re- that uh, related to me an illustration of the fact that a foundation is necessary, and you've got to have a foundation. And if the foundation is weak, the building is weak, The building can be no stronger than its foundation, but what kind of a building do you have that has only a foundation? Not laying again the foundation. I mean, you'll find men that just love to deal in the first principles of the doctrine of Christ, and all they're doing is laying the foundation again. There's no structure to it. You're missing the the, the glorious effects of the gospel just to have the foundation and not to build upon it. We are to be growing and progressing in our faith. But Paul says, let's not lay them again. Brethren, when you find someone that continually wants to go over the elementary facts of the faith, that Jesus, Jesus Christ deity, Jesus Christ death on the cross, Jesus Christ salvation of sinners, regeneration, the basic elementary facts of grace, you have found a babe that's in the pulpit. Not even a babe in the pew, but a babe in the pulpit. Once you establish those foundational aspects of the gospel, we need to go on. We need to go on. And Paul will do that if the Lord permits in chapters 7 through 13. And to give you an idea of what the principles of the doctrine of Christ are, he lists six of them simply to stroke your imagination so that you can understand what they are. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works. What is the first word that is preached, when whether it was John the Baptist preaching, or Jesus Christ preaching? Repent, and be converted, and be baptized, for the time is at hand. Paul and the other apostles went through the book of Acts, preaching Repentance and faith toward God, as we'll see here in the next principle. But look at, look at Acts chapter 20 and verse 28, 21. Acts chapter 20 and verse 21 to see what the elementary or the basic component of the gospel is. You know, when John started preaching, how, how did he start preaching? Repentance. When Jesus began preaching, what did he preach? Repentance. When Peter preached in the day of Pentecost, what did he preach? Repent and be baptized. Acts chapter 20 and verse 21, Paul here is describing his ministry, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Faith means to believe. What is After repentance, what does God require? But to believe... On the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, first time people are told to repent and believe. In the chariot, Philip told the eunuch, believe and thou mayest. And he said, I do believe. Whether it was the Philippian jailer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Those are the elementary facts of the gospel. You go into an Arminian church, brethren, and what do you hear? Every single sermon. For the most part but the elementary facts of the faith. Always pressing repentance and believing in order to be saved. Instead of moving on to perfection where the people can be taught something by which they might sanctify themselves and move forward in a life of holiness. What a pity. He says, let's not lay again the foundation of our faith. It includes repentance. It includes faith toward God. It includes the doctrine of baptisms, the doctrine of baptisms, not the doctrine of baptism, but the doctrine of baptisms. How many baptisms can you think of offhand? There are a number in the scriptures. The Israelites were baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. First Corinthians chapter ten. John the Baptist had a baptism of his own that we're told about in scriptures. In the Scripture, Jesus Christ baptized, although He didn't baptize with water directly, His disciples did it all, so that no one could say they'd been baptized by Jesus personally. And so go worship the spot or take a cup of water in a mason jar, take it home and sit it on their mantle and worship it. Jesus' disciples did the work. Oh, people will stoop. They'll stoop to the Shroud of Turin, and they'll stoop to the waters of the Jordan River. Jesus Christ baptized three different ways. Look at Matthew chapter 3. We can get three baptisms in Matthew chapter 3 and the 11th verse. I indeed, John the Baptist is speaking, baptize you with water unto repentance. We understand that's immersion in water as a sign of your repentance and discipleship With Christ. But John goes on to say, He that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Now there's three baptisms in one verse. There's the baptism in water, as we are all familiar with, and we often think of that as the main doctrine of baptism. But there is also the baptism with the Holy Ghost that occurred on the day of Pentecost when God poured out and inundated and overwhelmed the disciples so that they were filled and covered with the Holy Ghost. And it was referred to as a baptism of the Holy Ghost. The same thing happened to the household of Cornelius when he heard the gospel preached. It was a sign from Christ to Peter that Cornelius had been accepted. Because Peter was standing there wondering about this whole situation, and the Holy Ghost came upon them, and they began to speak in other tongues, and Peter knew that they ought to be baptized. And in chapter 11 of Acts, when he relates that to the elders that were in Jerusalem, he explains to them the fact that this is the fulfillment of the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Which baptism, we don't have time to deal with it this morning, does no longer occur in the way it occurred then, when special gifts were poured out upon the early believers, for there is no need of that confirmation. Listen, those, those apostles needed the baptism of the Holy Ghost in Acts chapter 2. They were so timid and fearful, how were they going to evangelize the city of Jerusalem if God hadn't baptized them with the Holy Ghost? And he did. Then there's a baptism of fire. Are you still at Matthew chapter 3? If you're still at Matthew chapter 3, I'm not, but I'll get there quickly. Let's read some more words of John relative to this baptism of fire. Verse 12. Whose fan? Whose fan? Jesus Christ, the one mightier than I that is coming after me. Whose fan shall be in his hand? Is in his hand. And he will truly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. This verse becomes important, but so do a whole lot of other verses before we finish this morning. That was the fire that was held back by the long-suffering of God that fell upon the Jews in 70 A.D. Remember when we studied the book of Malachi? In the book of Malachi, we read about how the day when Jesus Christ came or the time when Christ came would also bring with it a great fire that would burn up all the enemies of Christ. So here we have a baptism of water, we have a baptism of the Spirit, and we have a baptism of fire that Jesus Christ would bring on His enemies. Not only that, we have the baptism of suffering that Jesus Christ endured Himself when He went to the cross and was overwhelmed, He was immersed, He was buried in the wrath of Almighty God. There's the doctrine of baptisms. Baptism, you should understand. You should already be established in those things. And so we can move forward, the apostle says. The apostle goes on to say that we need not to review the laying on of hands. The, apostle la- the apostles laid hands on for a number of reasons. They laid hands on and supernaturally gave the gift of the Holy Ghost. Remember, it was Simon the sorcerer who saw that and thought he'd like to buy that skill to be able to do it himself. They laid the hands on sometimes for the ordinary transmission of gospel authority in second generation preachers. That's why when we have an ordination, there is a laying on of hands. It is a visible, public means by which we confirm or recognize a gift that Jesus Christ has given when they healed the sick. The Bible tells us they put hands on them and their diseases departed. Jesus had prophesied that in Mark chapter 16 and verse 18. Those things the Jews should have known about, heard about, and understood from the very beginning of their introduction to the gospel. It's a foundational fact. Paul goes on to include two more elements of first principles. Resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. When Paul went and preached in Acts chapter 17 in Athens... What subject did he take up that the Athenians found very interesting and they took him to Mars Hill so they could hear more about it? The resurrection of the dead. The resurrection of the dead. It was the resurrection of Christ that was a theme of the preaching of the apostles. Therefore, they needed those signs and wonders to confirm their preaching because who is going to believe about a resurrection of someone from the dead without signs confirming that witness. The resurrection from the dead is a foundation truth of our faith. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the apostle deals with a church that no longer believed in the resurrection from the dead. And he simply said, If Christ be not raised from the dead, then ye are yet in your sins, and our preaching is vain. That's how foundational it is. If we don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, what are you preaching? And oh, what a glorious gospel to preach that there is a resurrection from the dead. Look at Acts chapter 26. I love Paul's words here as he preaches to King Agrippa. Rhetorical questions the resurrection from the dead. What a message to take out to sinners that there is hope and salvation from death. He's preaching here to Agrippa and explaining to him why the Jews hate him. And he says in verse 6, And now I stand, Acts 26 and verse 6, And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers. There was a particular promise that Paul was preaching, that God had made unto the Jewish fathers, unto which promise our twelve tribes, instantly serving God day and night, hope to come. For which hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused of the Jews. Why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? Now that's a good rhetorical question. Why should it be thought A thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead. I mean, if God created us, can He not also raise us from the dead? Why do you think it is such an incredible thing, O King Agrippa? And it is the resurrection of the dead that the Jews hoped to come. That is, the Pharisees. Can you think of a Jewish denomination that did not believe there was a resurrection? Sadducees. And Paul used that To his credit, in Acts chapter 22, in confounding, or Acts chapter 21, in confounding the Jews by setting the Sadducees and the Pharisees against one another. The resurrection of the dead is something these Jews would have been taught immediately so that they could have divided between the good of the Pharisees and the evil of the Sadducees. Last of all, Paul mentions eternal judgment. The Jews knew eternal judgment from the Old Testament. For in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, after it says in verse 13, the whole duty of man is to fear God and to keep His commandments, it tells us in verse 14, for God shall bring every secret work into judgment. With every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Ecclesiastes 12:14. Eternal judgment will manifest the counsels and hearts of men They shall give an account of every word they have spoken, Jesus Christ preached to people in his day. These are foundational facts of our faith. Once in a while it's good to be reminded of eternal judgment. Once in a while it is good to be reminded of the laying on of hands and of what role they now play in the New Testament church. But we need to move on, and Paul says, let's leave all that. Those are elementary facts of our faith. Let's leave them. And this will we do if God permit. And what he means by that is, if God in His sovereign pleasure will allow me, I will take up again Jesus Christ called after the order of Melchizedek and we will explain Christ and His fulfillment of the Old Testament more perfectly. Even Paul often use the words, if God permit. If the Lord will. Paul says to a number of churches, I will come and see you, if the Lord will. Even Paul submitted his plans and his purposes to the sovereignty of the will of God. And that is what we must do. James writes in that passage I've used so many times, James chapter 4, verses 14 and 15, Go to... Ye that say today, tomorrow, I will go into such and such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. There's a man making an economic plan for his family. All such boasting is sin, James tells us. We ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall do this or that. Go ahead and make the plans. But they always must be subordinate to the Lord's will. So that if they don't work out, we understand that the hand of God was in it. Because we cannot boast of tomorrow. The Bible tells us, make make no boast of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. And so Paul himself gives us a good example in this place. Now that's the first section. He has rebuked the Hebrew Christians for their ignorance of the gospel of Christ. Having rebuked them, however, he tells them strong meat is necessary for you to come to a, to full age and to be proficient in, in discerning good from evil. And because those things are necessary, strong meat is necessary. Because I've already spent five chapters in the first principles, we now move forward. But now He lays a burden on them in verses 4 through 8. He lays a burden on these Jews that if they have no growth, if they have no progress, if they have no fruit, they are under the certain judgment of God that will be irredeemable. That means there is no remedy and it is imminent. If you cannot be convinced... In the first five chapters of this book, Paul writes, then you are under the judgment of God. If you have been convinced by the first five chapters of this book, then we shall delve into these things more deeply, beginning in chapter 7. Four connects us with what has gone on before. The rebuke that's taken place here. The criticism of the Hebrews. Not the criticism of others. The criticism of these Hebrew saints. Paul has been making. And he continues his reasoning with that word for. For. It is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away, to renew them again under repentance, seeing they crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh, and put Him to an open shame. If a man is introduced to the gospel and becomes a partaker in the gospel, and he falls away from it, He then places himself in a situation where there is no recovery for the greatness of his crime. And the greatness of his crime is crucifying Christ to himself, not actually, but to himself all over again. And there is no recovery but certain judgment. This is so simple, but I don't want to give you the solution immediately. I want to create the dilemma of where men have Strangled themselves in these three verses. As we look at the verses, though, keep in mind a few basic things. To whom was Paul writing? Jewish saints, elect, justified, regenerated, and converted that were in danger of letting the things that they had heard slip and going back into Judaism. That is so Im- It's been important all the way, hasn't it? If it's ever been important, it's important right now. And if you'll even think about what I'm saying right now, you may see how these three verses are to be interpreted. Will you please this morning clear your mind from any preconceived idea on what these verses mean. And remember, to whom was the book written? Why was it written? Paul is bringing every means to his service to persuade these Jews not to go back to Old Testament religion, not to depart from the gospel, but to remain true to their profession in Jesus Christ. Remember that the immediate context is the lack of growth and fruit in the lives of these Jewish saints. Remember, you have not read chapter 6 unless you've been doing what you should. If you've read the rest of chapter 6, you know that what is contained there is a blessing on those who are faithful and a curse upon those who are not. That's the intermediate context. Keep in mind all these things. Keep in mind that eternal salvation is not an issue. Eternal salvation is already in the possession of these Hebrews. Remember chapter 3 and verse 1? Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. What is a calling but an appointment? God had already appointed these Hebrews to eternal glory. They were holy brethren. They were elect. They were regenerate. They were justified. And they already had that final glorification guaranteed. Practical salvation is the key to this book. Practical salvation is the key to this book. Brethren, I'm not wasting any words right now. Practical salvation is the key to the book of Hebrews. He's writing to save Hebrews in order to convince them to hold fast their gospel profession that they not suffer practical judgment. That's all for the moment. Let's look at how this text has been abused. For any who want to learn the Word of God to be able to answer questions, if you ever look very far, you will face Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. All the Arminians... Love to run to Hebrews 6, 4-6 because in this place they have a group of people that were saved. Remember, there are five characteristics here given of the professors in verses 4 and 5. They were enlightened. They tasted of the heavenly gift. They were partakers of the Holy Ghost. They tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come. I'll explain those in a minute. They look at those five and they say, obviously, this is a person who has been born again and is saved. And then they read verse 6, If they shall fall away. Why, if a person like that doesn't continue in their good works, then they're irrecoverably lost. And they see if they shall fall away to renew them again into repentance. And so they preach the doctrine that if you do not maintain good works, you may lose your salvation you may fall from grace and lose your salvation and end up in hell though you were once saved. Brethren, millions of people believe this doctrine. And every Baptist church in this town should believe that doctrine if they were ever consistent with their theology. Because every verse they can raise to teach that you have to believe the gospel in order to guarantee final salvation, I'll raise another verse that is worded the same way that you have to maintain good works to guarantee your final salvation. They miss the whole boat by not dividing up the phases of salvation. They teach that we have true professors, true Christians, who fall away, who sin, and there end up in hell and lose their salvation. Now, when we go into that passage, did, did you even have a problem with that? If you have a problem with that, then you need some review. We must enter into a passage like Hebrews chapter 6, well grounded in the fact of the eternal security of those that believe the gospel. I don't like using that word because it's, it's abused too much. We must believe in the preservation of God's elect, that everyone God elected shall be justified by Christ I should say, was justified by Christ, shall be regenerated by the Spirit and will eventually be glorified in heaven. Remember Romans chapter 8. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. And whom he predestinated, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. The number that starts in that first door of the foreknowledge of God, is the same number that comes out the back door into heaven itself, glorified. We don't lose any on the way. We don't lose any in the closet, in the house. Listen, the number that goes in makes it out the other side. For whom? That number, those individuals, he also glorified. And Paul goes on to say, what shall we then say to these things? If God before us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And those all things include glorification, mentioned two verses earlier. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Well, the Arminians will. And by Arminians, I'm just not referring to Southern Baptists. I'm referring to true Arminians. The Southern Baptists are so messed up on their theology, you can't even call them Arminians. Listen, Arminians are consistent. They don't believe in easy believism. A true Arminian believes that once you accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and you repent of your sins and you're baptized, if you don't maintain good works consistently and always confessing your sins until the day you die, you'll go to hell. That's a tough doctrine. These people out here in our city, brethren, don't even have the guts to preach that message. All they preach is if you can get your kiddies down to the altar in time and they invite Jesus into their heart, they are forever safe. Easy believism. You can't blame the Arminians for preaching against that. But they missed the boat. How do we know that in this passage, this is not under consideration One of the best ways of reasoning with anyone is to take their argument and make it prove too much. Now, if these people are truly saved, and if falling away means losing their salvation, the text also proves they can never get it back. Nor do they teach that once you lose your salvation, you can't get it back. That is their religion exhorting and pressing their people to confess their sins and be once again in the grace of God and make their salvation secure again until the next time they sin, which for anyone who would be honest would be a rather frequent in and out proposition. It's amazing talking to those people and asking them how you get unborn again. That's the way I put it to them. If you're born again, how do you undo it? Sounds sort of like Nicodemus, doesn't it? (laughs) Do I go back into my mother's womb? How do you do it? To be born a third time and a fourth time? It proves too much. We know that many can fall from the truth and be recovered, don't we? Why, we read over there in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 5 where Jesus spoke to the church at Ephesus. He says, Repent from where thou art fallen. And do it quickly, or I'll come and take away your candlestick. Repent from whence thou art fallen. Now there are some that have fallen that can be recovered, Revelation 2, 5. But we understand that because we know that you can fall practically, but not fall legally. The poor Arminian gets the two mixed up. And so when they read their Bible, there's no divisions made, so they end up being shamed in their doctrine. When they see the word fall, they automatically assume it it has to mean one thing, fall from the grace of God legally, because they don't have those divisions made. We know that it can't be saying that there were some who were once saved and now aren't saved because we know better from the rest of Scripture. That would be placing a private interpretation upon this passage that would contradict the rest of the word of God. We can commend the Arminians for wanting to fight easy believism. I hate easy believism. You go ask the average Southern Baptist or one of these independent Baptists out here today how they know they're saved. And you know what they're going to refer to? They're going to tell you, when I was 12 years old, I accepted Jesus Christ in daily vacation Bible school when they promised me an airplane ride if I would do it. Now, they might not add on the last part of it, but that's how most of it occurred. Oh, I've been part of those shams. They will refer to a, a point in time where they made some mental assent to the gospel. Such a joke. Who cares if you accepted Christ if you don't live up to that profession? Right. The whole message of the gospel is how are you living? Not what you believe. The devils believe in Jesus Christ. The devils have accepted Jesus Christ as the Holy One of God. Do you all know that? The devils have accepted Jesus Christ as the Son of God. Every time they found Him, they wanted to profess that. But how far will that faith get them? It has no works. Faith without works is dead, brethren. Who cares? I'll say it again. If you've accepted Christ. I don't blame the true Arminians for wanting to preach the importance of good works. But you can't preach it here because this text proves way too much. So we see the tattered remnants of the Armenian army fleeing on the left. And then we look over to the right and we see the tattered remnants of the Calvinist army fleeing just as quickly in the opposite direction. Oh, the poor Calvinists. They get to this passage and they see those who fall away and are irrecoverable and they think to themselves, what can this possibly refer to? Because if God's elect, we're elect, and then they fall away, and they can't be recovered, and since we believe in the perseverance of the saints, because the Heidelberg Catechism forces us to believe in the perseverance of the saints, we've got to do something with these three verses. So do you know what they do? They take verses 4 and 5, and the five descriptions of the individuals under consideration and say that they thought they had those five things. They didn't really have them. They were false professors snuck into the New Testament church who made a pretense to New Testament religion. They were sort of lightened. You know, they knew more than the heathen. I've read so much, brethren, that it's made me sick to read a Calvinist on Hebrews 6, 4 through 6 to watch them take these words and rest them so they have no meaning you tell me how a reprobate is lightened you tell me how a reprobate tastes of the heavenly gift you know what they'll do They'll, they'll run pages on the word taste taste doesn't mean eat you know you can taste of something and not get it inside you work and have its benefit Well, brethren, I'll turn back three chapters where it said Jesus Christ tasted death for all all of us. And I don't think he just stuck it in his mouth, but I believe he drank the full cup. And it says taste. And I thank God for an English Bible that gives me words I can use without referring to any Greek or without listening to all their resting of Scripture. Peter said, If so be ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious, in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 3. Now, is that addressed to false professors? What the Calvinist has to do in order to maintain perseverance of the saints is make these three verses apply to reprobates that sneak into the church and look like true professors. But that isn't what Paul said. Paul said that these are individuals that were lightened John 1: 4 in him Christ was life and the life was the light of men there is no light to men without life because without life they are dead and brethren tell me how much light a dead man has they've tasted of the heavenly gift they were made partakers of the Holy Ghost can you can you imagine wrestling that one They're partakers of the Holy Ghost, but they're reprobates. They've tasted the good word of God. I read that Jesus Christ spoke to reprobates and said that they could neither understand nor hear because they were not of God. Now, how do you taste? And again, look at the word taste in light of how Paul and Peter use the word. How do you taste the word of God? How do you partake of the word of God without being of God? And they have tasted the powers of the world to come. World to come? What world is that? Hebrews 2, 5. The New Testament gospel dispensation. They've tasted the powers of that. If you go back to Hebrews 2, 4 and 5, you'll read about all the miracles that God poured out in the New Testament, which was the kingdom coming with power. So much on that point. Do you know Jesus Christ once said in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 28? There be some standing here that shall not taste of death till they see the kingdom of God come with power. What was he referring to? But a fuller manifestation of the New Testament kingdom coming into being with the power of Pentecost and with the power of destruction upon the Jewish nation. That's the world to come because God did away with one world and brought in a new world and he brought with it a great manifestation of P-O-W-E-R, power. They've tasted of the powers of the world to come. We'll come back to those five in just a second. What is the Calvinist doing, you ask? They have to defend their doctrine of perseverance. So some of them mess around with verses 4 and 5 and then they'll go to verse 6 And they'll tell you the word if is not in the Greek. The word if is not in the Greek. They don't want that word if there. Do you know why? Because if the word if is there, and those that fail the if and fall away can't be recovered, then there must be some that fall away and can be recovered. So they don't like the if, so they get rid of the if. And they say it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have fallen away. To recover themselves. And that if would mean. Since they have reprobate false professors. In verses 4 and 5. That not all of them fall away. Do you follow the trouble they're in? So they get rid of the word if. The word if. Not the, the word f, But the word if. They get rid of in Hebrews 6, 6 in order to sew up what they think is a sure position that these three verses are describing reprobates who sneak into the New Testament church, make a show of the gospel, appear to be true believers, then they fall away, and then are irrecoverably lost. You can probably see some logical conclusions I'm going to lay on that position in just a minute. It's absurd. It's absurd, brethren. I, I have been rejoicing in God for the fact that He has revealed truth to us. If you only knew the theological battles that have been fought in these three verses and how simple they will be in just a minute. I hope. God be merciful. They, they claim that Paul is using an example here of false professors to motivate these Jewish Christians to further obedience that's how that's how they try to fit it all together first objection the five characteristics mentioned in verses 4 and 5 prove too much you cannot fairly use those five descriptions and end up with false professors paul is not addressing false professors paul is not addressing reprobates paul is addressing duly elected justified, regenerated, and converted individuals. And I will remind you of chapter 3 and verse 1. Let's look at the five characteristics just just briefly. They were lightened. They were once enlightened. Look over here at Hebrews chapter 10. Oh, you ought to read some of the commentaries, brethren. They talk about two different groups in Hebrews chapter 6. Two different groups in Hebrews chapter 6. Half reprobates and half God's elect. And verses 4 through 6 are dealing with the reprobates. Verses 1 through 3 are dealing with the elect. And verses 9 through 20 are dealing with the elect. Two different groups. And they say the reprobates are the ones lightened. But they never come to a saving knowledge of the truth. Remember a Calvinist believes you have to believe the gospel in order to be saved and there is their downfall. Hebrews chapter... Did I say 13? I meant chapter 10 and verse 32. We don't have time this morning to go and look at these five characteristics very closely, but here's a reference on being enlightened. Hebrews ten thirty-two, Called to remembrance the former days in which after ye were illuminated ye endured a great fight of afflictions. Who was illuminated? The Hebrew saints. The Hebrew saints. You won't find any place in Scripture where the gospel illuminates or enlightens, reprobates. But oh, they'll argue the... They have to argue the point. They have to argue the point. Because if that falling away is gospel falling away, and if the individuals under consideration here in these three verses... Are God's elect, then what falls flat to the ground? The P of their tulip. Perseverance of the saints. If they have elect, falling away, then they have perseverance of the saints destroyed. And that's what they have, is perseverance of the saints destroyed. But we don't believe in perseverance of the saints, do we, brethren? Do we find that in Scripture? We believe in the preservation of the saints and there is the difference between the two of light and darkness, day and night, truth and error. Paul, the five characteristics prove too much. They were once enlightened. That was true of the Hebrew saints. They have tasted of the heavenly gift. What is the heavenly gift? Salvation, Jesus Christ, the Holy Ghost. Those three are so inseparably connected. When you repent, and believe on Jesus Christ, and are baptized in His name, you receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. They have tasted of the heavenly gift. What gift do you want to make it? And what kind of tasting do you want to make it to try to get reprobates through that clause? They have tasted of the heavenly gift. And some of you, brethren, that have read Calvinist on this passage... Don't let that word taste throw you. Go read Paul and Peter on the word taste. If you push taste here to mean, it doesn't mean eating, and it doesn't mean getting the full benefit of it. It's like tasting a sandwich and not getting the nutritional value out of it. I'll remind you of Jesus Christ tasting death. And Peter saying, If so be ye have tasted it, the Lord is gracious. Why, the saints he was writing to, telling them that they ought to make their calling and election sure, Already having told them they were God's elect, he said to them, you've tasted the grace of God. Objection number three. How is it possible for reprobates to crucify Christ afresh? I'm just going to ask you some questions. This text says that whoever is involved crucifies Christ afresh. How does a reprobate crucify Christ afresh? A reprobate never crucified Christ the first time because he didn't die for them. How does the behavior of reprobates exhort a saint to be obedient? What is the force of telling me that if a reprobate falls away, he's a reprobate? How does that encourage me to obedience? If a reprobate... Let's boil it down. Let's, let's blow out all their eloquent language. If a reprobate falls away from the gospel, he's a reprobate. That's deep. Very convincing. Very weighty. Paul's been so powerful thus far in Hebrews, what happened to him here? Was it a lapse? Did he take an act of fed And it clouded his mind for a while. That's pitiful reasoning. That would. Who cares about the reprobates? that sneak into the congregation. They were reprobates before, they are reprobates afterward. If they are false professors, brethren, from what do they fall? If they shall fall away. What did they ever have to fall from? If it was all a pretense, if it was all in their minds, from what did they fall? Nothing. Since the case is hypothetical here with the if, what if they don't fall? (laughs) Oh, no. We got reprobates in the book of life. What, What do we do? Since it's hypothetical, what if they don't fall? How do we renew them, brethren? Read every word. How do we renew them again to repentance if they never got there in the first place? These are false professors. They never had repentance. You say, but they had a pretense of repentance. Well, is that what Paul wants to renew them to again? Now, come on now. Let's be consistent. Renew them again. Why is that word again in there? because they weren't false professors in the sense that the Calvinist uses that expression. How do reprobates shame Christ? Since they never knew Christ. How do you shame Christ when you were no part of Christ? You say, by living ungodly lives. You think the wicked out there living ungodly lives are shaming Christ? It's those who have the name of Christ that are His that ought to depart from iniquity. How do how do those that aren't sons shame a father? I mean, how we shame Christ by being His sons and not living up to our family relationship. How do those outside the family shame the family? I mean, if your kids are rebellious, it's no shame. That's not a good example because it is a shame. (laughs) If my kids are rebellious, it's no shame on you. I mean, how how do reprobates shame Christ since they're not even part of the family? Since a Calvinist denies eternal salvation to a person that does not believe the gospel, since they already teach that, what force do these three verses have? That a false professor Loses his opportunity for the gospel. Where is the force in their reasoning? Since they already didn't deny salvation to an unbeliever. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 4 is certainly describing those that are God's elect, that are justified, that are regenerated, and that are converted. Because if you look at all those expressions in light of the scriptures, you will find them describing God's elect and God's regenerated family and those that have been converted. They've tasted the good word of God. I mean, the good word of God has lightened them, it tells us here. They have come to an understanding of the truth. There is one other position taken on this passage other than the true. We have the Arminians. They're true believers who lose salvation. We have the Calvinists. They're reprobates who pretend to a true profession who then lose what they had, whatever that had was. We then have a third position taken by what I'll call the unconditionalists. We are unconditionalists, which we are prone to force onto this passage. What we do is we make true professors in verses 4 and 5, God's elect, who have known the truth, who have been regenerated, and we make if purely hypothetical, referring to the loss of legal or vital salvation. It reads this way, It is impossible for those who have shown evidence of regeneration if they shall lose their regeneration to ever be regenerated again, since that would be putting Christ to an open shame by making his death of no effect. That, doctrinally, is consistent with the rest of Scripture. Contextually, it is violent. Contextually, it has no place in here at all. The context does not justify a legal or vital consideration of salvation right here. The context is saved Hebrews, those that are saved legally, those that are saved vitally, that they fall not away and be judged practically. If it was, as I just explained it, those that have given the signs of regeneration cannot fall away because regeneration cannot be redone, because that would mean Christ's death was of no effect. If that was the proper interpretation, that would be a very comforting passage, wouldn't it? Where's the exhortation in the passage if it was that? There would be no exhortation. It would just be purely comfort. But notice what Paul says in verse 9. But beloved, we are persuaded better things of you, and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. Now, does that sound like he's been talking comfortably? Though we thus speak, he's been saying some very hard things to them. But he backs off in verse 9 by saying, I'm persuaded that you're different. I'm persuaded that you're different. What is the purpose or force of a hypothetical impossible situation? What good does it do right here? given the context of what Paul is going after. Paul is defending teaching here. Paul is defending growing in instruction, progressing in the knowledge of the gospel. If he meant what the unconditionalists like to put on this verse by saying we can't lose our regeneration, that would be a comfort not to go forward in your understanding. And what he's actually trying to do is bring to bear a great weight of obligation that we need to be progressing in our Christian profession. Listen, brethren, it says in the last part of verse 6, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh. That isn't a legal crucifying of Christ again. That isn't a vital crucifying of Christ again. That is something that they do, something. Something they simply do themselves. If there was ever to be a person that lost his regeneration, that wouldn't be to oneself. That would be in the face of Almighty God that he failed. We have run out of time. What I'm going to do right now is give you the solution quickly, and tonight we'll prove it. There is so much to prove. I mean, so much proof to give you. It's, there's not much proof needed because it's so simple. For it is impossible. And immediately, men think that we've come to some new situation. Paul's been saying that all the way from the first chapter. Verses 4 through 6 are simply this. If the believing Hebrews who had received the gospel and had accepted it went back to Judaism... If they went back to Judaism, they have committed a crime against the Son of God that is irremediable. There is no remedy for it. They shall surely be judged and they will be included with the rest of the nation when God burns up their nation. For it is impossible for Jews to have accepted the Christ, to have accepted the gospel and to have followed Christ in the late day of the apostles to go back and then to be brought back again. Because once they went back to their vomit, once they went back as a peg to its mud and its wallowing, God closes the door of opportunity to Jews. How many times did Paul preach, and as soon as the Jews would argue against the gospel of Christ, he would say to them, your blood be upon your own heads. We turn to the Gentiles. Now, he didn't say that to Gentiles you'll find him laboring with Gentiles over and over and over. Galatians 4.19, trying to form Christ in you again, he says, of the Galatians. The Galatians were Gentiles that had gone back to Judaism. Could they be recovered? Yes. Could the Jews be recovered? No. What's the principle? To whom much is given, much shall be required. It was too late in the history of the Jewish nation. This is simply... Simply a statement to Jews. If you've participated in the blessings of the gospel, if you've understood the word of God, if you've seen their fulfillment in Christ, if you've tasted the heavenly gift, and you go back to Judaism, it is all over for you. God will judge you and there is no recovery. You say, that's awful strong. It has been just as strong all the way to this point. Listen to this. For it is impossible. You know what word's getting you? It is impossible. That means there is no recovery for a Jew that would go back from his profession of the gospel. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? What is neglecting so great salvation? Falling away. How shall you escape? You won't. It is impossible. He said it in chapter 2 and verse 3. How about chapter 3? Why is the whole example given of the Israelites in the wilderness? Because once God swears in His wrath, there is no recovery. It is impossible, once God has sworn His wrath, for a person who has fallen away from the gospel to ever get back into the gospel, because God will harden their hearts and blind them. That's the whole message of chapter 3 and 4. Didn't he say in chapter 3 and verse 12, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart... Why didn't he say take heed reprobates among the brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from your reprobated profession? He said, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief... What? In departing from the living God. Holy brethren... That was verse 1 of the same chapter, departing from the living God. If they depart from the living God, the same judgment lays upon them. God will swear in his wrath against them, and there will be no recovery to the gospel. They will be hardened and locked out from the gospel, cut off from the olive tree. Romans chapter 11. I've I've got 150 verses to run to on this point. It's beautiful. It's so simple. The whole book of Hebrews is the same message. Chapter 4, verse 11. Chapter 4, verse 1. Let us therefore fear, lest, a, there's the if, a promise being left us of entering into His rest, any of you should seem to come short of it and miss it. Because if you come short and you don't make it, God's going to cut you off. Let us therefore labor to enter into His rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. What was the example? When, when they did not take the land of Canaan, They, I mean the Israelites in the wilderness, when they did not take the land of Canaan, God swore in his wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. What did they say? We have sinned. We will take the land. And they girded on their swords, and they went to take the land. But what had happened? God had sworn against them it was too late. Let us therefore fear. You ought to read Arthur Pink. Arthur Pink goes into Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 4. And because it says, For it is impossible for those, and he writes and he writes on the word those. It does not say we, it does not say us. Every warning given in the book of Hebrews says we and us. Do you think Paul had to repeat himself again? How about Hebrews 10:26? For if we sin, After that, we have received the knowledge of the truth. He is not talking about reprobates. He's talking about himself, the Apostle Paul. I keep under my body, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. It is possible for any of God's elect to fall away from the truth of the gospel, and especially for these Jews that were so tempted to go back to Jehovah's religion of the Old Testament. And the point is, once they go back, it was too late. God would swear in His wrath that they could not enter into the rest of the New Testament. brother. we're going to get to a number of passages. The Calvinists will rest the same way. Look at Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 26. For if... That's the if of the falling away. For if we, not reprobates... If we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. That isn't hell fire. That's the fire of the baptism of Christ on the Jewish nation because we're going to read tonight in Matthew chapter 22 and verse 7 when Jesus Christ invited the Jewish nation to His marriage feast and they refused to come what would He do? he would send his armies and burn up their city. And when the Jews rejected the Son of God, it was over as far as they were concerned. If some of those Jews heard the gospel, believed it, but then went away from it, they put themselves in the same situation as the crucifiers of the Lord of glory. And the crucifiers of the Lord of glory were utterly destroyed without remedy. Your house is left unto you desolate. That's all Hebrews 6, 4 through 6 is talking about. It's no more deeper or difficult to understand than Hebrews 2, 3. How shall we escape? That's impossibility. How shall we? If God asks the question, there's no way to escape. It's a rhetorical question. It's impossible to escape. If Jews go back, they are under the judgment of God. Because they put themselves right in with the adversaries of Jesus Christ and they crucify the Son of God afresh. They've said they believed on Him. Now they go back and join His murderers. And brethren, the murderers of Jesus Christ met with fiery indignation, with the baptism of fire. And tonight, we shall look at the proof for this solution to Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. As you're reading through the book of Hebrews... And you come to this place. It's no passage that defends losing your salvation. You know that's not true from the rest of Scripture. It's no passage dealing with reprobates in the church. Who cares about reprobates in the church? What God does with reprobates in the church is irrelevant. What is important is, what about those who have truly professed to follow Christ and who fall away from a true profession? What happens to God's elect that fall away? They are cut out of the rest as surely as Moses was cut out of Canaan for an act of unbelief. God is merciful to a point, and then he can take it no longer. And even with Moses, when Moses did not believe in the wilderness, God said, you will not see the land of Canaan. He swore in his wrath against even Moses. And the warning to Jews from Paul is that they were under the same threat if they were to fall away back to Judaism. They would become more crucifiers of Jesus Christ and receive the just consequences. To Gentiles, Luke 12:47 and 48 applies to whom much is given, much shall be required. The Jews had been given so much. That's why God's judgment was so severe and without remedy. But brethren, we live in a day and a time and God has blessed us with so much knowledge of His Word. How can the judgment of anyone in this congregation that departs from the faith be any less than that of the Jews? It would have to be worse. Because we know far more than they knew. We have been blessed with more than they were blessed with. May God bless us to come back this evening and to continue... Our study.